We are starting today on the book of Daniel. And so Daniel is uh, a, a short ways before the end of the Old Testament. Uh, and uh, uh, so you find the prophet Daniel. Some people call, her, call him a prophet. Some people call him a statesman. Uh, and let me just give you a, a little bit of background, which is apropos to the study of this book. So this book picks up in 605, AD, 605 BC, 605 years, 605 BC. It's the, the first campaign of King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, the, the, uh, the king at that time in Jerusalem was Jehoiakim. He was, he was a vassal, actually, of Pharaoh. King of Egypt had set him in there. A few years before this, uh, uh, there was a very good king named Josiah. Josiah, though, stepped out and did something independently and tried to get involved with a battle that was not his. King Pharaoh was going to fight the father of King Nebuchadnezzar, actually. And, and uh, Pharaoh Necho had nothing to do with, with, um, with Josiah, but Josiah stepped in the middle of this and Josiah got killed. And so Pharaoh Necho then appointed one of Josiah's sons to be, to be uh, um, a vassal king, and that didn't work out, and so he took him out and he put in Jehoiakim. Now, Jehoiakim was not a nice guy at all, not at all, but he was a vassal of the king of, of, of uh, Egypt. But in 605, 605 there was a, a, a prior, just prior to this, Nebuchadnezzar had taken over um, uh, Egypt, that was no problem for him. His, uh, uh, his, his Babylon had become extremely strong. And in 605 BC, there was a, his first campaign. During that first campaign, when they came into to, uh, to Jerusalem, King Nebuchadnezzar took some of the vessels out of Jerusalem, and he took some of the, the royal, some of the royalty, and some of the upper echelon young people. To, to come to his kingdom. And this was common, that you would transport people, and in this time he took some choice men, and Daniel being among them, and transported them to Babylon. There was a second campaign in 597 B.C., and that's when he took 10,000 skilled workers and the prophet Ezekiel. So Ezekiel and Daniel are contemporaries. And uh, at that time, so, so Daniel had, had already been for a number of years in Babylon, when Ezekiel showed up with 10,000 skilled workers. And then in 587 and 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar came a third time and finally wiped out that rebellious city and took many of the people captive and wiped out that city. But by that time, when all these refugees started coming into Babylon, Daniel had already been there 19 years in Babylon. The book is written in Hebrew and Aramaic. Hebrew and Aramaic, and writing in Aramaic was no problem for Daniel because he was trained in the language of the Chaldeans, of, of the, the, the area of Babylon, which was Aramaic. There's actually 21 Persian words, and there's three Greek words. The three Greek words are instruments that are mentioned in the book, but it's primarily Hebrew and Aramaic. It's not, it's not written chronologically. Chapters 1 through 4 are written chronologically, then uh, uh, chapters 5 and 6 are skipped. So it's chapters 1 through 4, then 7 and 8, then 5, 6, 9, 5, 9 6, 10 through 12. And so, so uh, uh, Daniel didn't, wasn't 
seeking to write it chronologically, he was, he was making a point. This book is part of the four books where miracles are abundant. So if you think of the Bible, you say, oh, the Bible is full of all sorts of miracles. How come we don't see it today? Actually, there's four periods in the Bible where miracles are abundant. The first one is in Exodus and the journeys in the wilderness. There you see a lot of miracles. Another one is during the time of Elijah and Elisha. Those two prophets in that time, miracles were abundant. The Gospels and the book of Acts, there's abundant miracles in the Gospels. There's less in the book of Acts, but a significant number. But less in the book of Acts. And then also in this book of Daniel, there, there are a lot of miraculous things happening. Other than that, in the scriptures, it's a lot, much, lot more like the day in which we live today. Where, where, um, where what you see is you see a period where, where there's, there's not this constant doing of miracles. It's very common to what, to what we see today. So let's pick up and start reading in Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. The king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of the officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank and appointed that they should be educated three years at the end of which they, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the king commanded the officials assigning new names to them. To Daniel he assigned the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Okay, so, so what we see here is that we see a time when it says in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim. So Daniel is writing in the nation of Babylon and he mentions it as the third year of Jehoiakim. If you, if you look in Ezekiel, it will mention the fourth year of Jehoiakim. So which was it, the third year or the fourth year? But just as we had spoken about in, this, in our study of the life of Christ, in Hebrew reckoning, any part of a year of a reign was part of the reign. So Jehoiakim actually had a small part of reign in one year and then it transferred into the second year. But because of that small part, it was dictated four years. In, in, uh, in Babylon, it was very different. You did it by the years that he reigned. And the years that he had reigned was three when this came to happen. So Nebuchadnezzar came, it says, from Babylon, the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, and he came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. So when you think about this, there's nothing unusual about this historically. Nothing unusual. The strong dominate the weak. This is what happens throughout history. You have a very powerful nation in Babylon. You have a nation now 
which is just Judah and maybe a little bit of Benjamin, because Benjamin and Judah are, are, are just very close to each other. They, 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 they border each other. And in fact, Jerusalem, Jerusalem is right on the border with Benjamin. And uh, uh, David actually set up his house on the Benjamin side of the border, whereas the temple was on the, on, on, on the Judean side in, in, in Jerusalem. You say, why did he do that? Well, he did that so that he could get the Benjaminites to favor him as well. Because remember, it was the Benjaminites where Saul was from and they favored King Saul. And so what he did to befriend him, he actually set up his house there so they'd be, he'd be the, you know, a homeboy from, from, from Benjamin. And because he already had the Judeans on his side. So it was actually a very wise thing to do. But here you have this small city. A period earlier from this, a few decades earlier, King Assyria had already taken all of the northern kingdom, all of the other tribes, he had already taken into Assyria and displaced them. But the only thing that remained was Jerusalem, the Judean Jerusalem. This was it, and the Judean Valley around there. So the, 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 the ten tribes of the north were gone, and only Jerusalem and a little bit, that little bitty Benjamin, Benjamin was a very small tribe, was left. That was it. And so they come and now they besieged what was happening. Why would God do this? Think about this. If this were just normal history, if this were just normal history, we would just think that's the way it is. Big nation takes over small nation. Happens all the time. But what about for us and what about for them? This was this nation where God had delivered them out of Egypt. And God, with Moses being at the lead there, brought them through this entire wilderness. God established them in this place. God gave so many promises to them. What about the Messianic kingdom? What about the reign of King David? King David had been there and God had said, through King David and through this line... Your kingdom will never end. What about all these promises? We feel the same thing too. What about all the promises God has made us? Are believers any different than unbelievers? I mean, people come into churches and they steal things and they run out and you don't see a bolt of lightning hit them. It's as if the church, not the church, I mean, there's no difference. The church gets robbed just like, just like everybody else. Believers get robbed just like everybody else. How, how come? If we were to look at this purely in, in, in uh, uh, secular historical terms, this makes perfect sense. The strong dominate the weak. But what about God's promises? How could this be? What happened to the Davidic kingdom? What happened to the line of David? Why would God do this? In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, he talks about how, how swords would be beaten into plowshares. There wouldn't be war anymore. What about these promises? How is this now going to be fulfilled when, when there is no more Jerusalem even from all of these 12 tribes? That now has even been taken over. And then, then you think about Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, these four young men, what about them? What do they have to do with all of this? What's going on here? 
But if you look in Daniel, chapter 1, verse 2, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. It was typical in those days that when you took over another land, you took their gods and you set them up in your own kingdom. You brought their gods into your kingdom, but the Jews had no gods in their temple. They weren't allowed to have images of God, so what he did is he took the vessels, not knowing that by his establishing those vessels there, that was going to plan the end for one of his descendants when he took over Babylon. But it says, the Lord gave Jehoiakim. So it was God who turned him over. It wasn't as if Jehoiakim... So Daniel could have started anywhere. Why did Daniel start to write his book here? There's all these tantalizing things about Daniel that we would love to know. What kind of upbringing did he have? What was his family like? What was it like on the day when they took Daniel and his three friends and, and these young nobles away? in chains, bringing them on this long journey back to Babylon, which is up in, in Iraq, very close to Iran, present-day Iran. So it's a long walk. What about his family? What were they saying when they saw him carted off? What was going through his young mind? And the age of Daniel is very close to the age of many of you in this room. It was between the ages of 15 and 20 that they were taken. When it characterized them as young men, they were between the ages of 15 and 20 that they were going in. Daniel is going to end up in leadership in Babylon and in Persia under six different kings. He will outlive, he will live through a period, he will outlive five of them, and then during the sixth king of Cyrus, he will continue to reign, he will continue to to serve with him in the upper echelons through six different kings, five from Babylon and then one from Persia. He's going to, to serve 69 years. 69 years he's going to serve these kings. It's a long time. He doesn't know any of this at this point. All he knows is he's being taken. What about him? What about us? I mean, you say we're caught up in all of this? What about believers? Are we caught up in all of this? All of these things of history are coming to take place. Why would this happen? Well, look in Jeremiah chapter 22. In Jeremiah chapter 22, what we see, and we're going to start reading from verse 1, is a warning that Jeremiah had given not long before this happened. Maybe a decade, maybe two decades before this, this event occurred. And look at what Jeremiah says. Thus says the Lord, go down to the house of the king of Judah and there speak this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, who sits on David's throne, you and your servants and your people who enter these gates. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver the one who has been robbed from the power of his oppressor. Also do not mistreat or do violence to the stranger, the orphan or the widow and do not shed innocent blood in this place. For if you men will indeed perform this thing, the kings will enter the gates of this house, sitting in David's 
place on his throne, riding in chariots and on horses, even the king himself and his servants and his people. But if you will not obey these words, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house will become a desolation. There was warning after warning, repeated warning to them that if you don't follow these ways of God, destruction is coming to this city. This did not happen. It was not a mystery. It was prophesied that this is what would happen. He says, you've got to take care of the poor, the orphans and the widows. You've got to do this. You've got to take care of them. Verse, it goes on in verse 6. For thus says the Lord concerning the house of the king of Judah, you are like Gilead to me, like the summit of Lebanon. Yet most assuredly, I will make you like a wilderness, like the cities which are not inhabited. For I will set apart destroyers against you, each one with his weapons, and they will cut down your choicest cedars. They will throw them on the fire. Many nations will pass by this city and they will say to one another, Why has the Lord done thus to this great city? And they will answer, Because they forsook the covenant of the Lord their God and bowed down to other gods and served them. Why were they going into captivity? There were three reasons that are listed in the scriptures. Number one, because of idolatry. Because Israel had moved into idolatry. And what did God do? He took the most idolatrous nation on earth, Babylon, which was filled with idols. He said, you want idols? I'll give you idols. Go to Babylon. I will take you to Babylon. You will see idols. Remember, they wanted quail to eat. He gave them quail until they became sick of it. You want idols? I'll give you idols. You want to walk in sin? You walk in it. You see what will happen. You want to disobey the things of God? You may well be released into the disobedience that can come. And you will see it in the extreme. And that is what he says to them. You want idols? I'll give you idols. He set them up into Babylon. The other thing that they didn't do, the scriptures tell us in other portions, is they did not give a Sabbath rest to the land. And he said, I'm going to restore the Sabbaths that you didn't give to the land. The Sabbaths rest. They were to to give the land rest every seven years. Every seventh year they were to rest the land. And he says, I will make it up because I'm going to throw you out of that land for 70 years to make up for all the Sabbath rests you didn't give the land. And the the last thing is they didn't care for the poor. He goes, he talks about it up here, caring for the stranger, for the orphan, for the widow. This is something as a church that we have to do. You may not have learned this in your family, but learn it now. We take care of those who are in need. You see somebody sick, you say, is there something that I can bring you? You're in your room, you're sick. Is there something I can get you from the servery? Is there something I can do to help you? You say, well, I don't want to go in their room. I might get sick. You know, they have church. We take care of them. What caused the church to absolutely explode in numbers throughout the first and second centuries so that within 150 years, the biggest world religion was Christianity? It is clear. Historians will tell you is because the church took care of the poor and the infirmed. And that is how it grew. 
When we take care of the poor, we are blessed. When we take care of widows, we are blessed. You take care of people like this and there is great blessing in it. This is why they were thrown out of that land. It was an issue of morality. Because you become immoral, you are being tossed out of this land. Israel had gotten to the point where they thought, all these promises are upon us. All of God's blessing is going to be dropped on us. It doesn't quite matter what we do. But God loves His people enough to not allow that to happen. And that is why they were going into captivity. It is only in that context that it makes sense how Babylon could have taken the last of these cities. How could it happen? Because of immorality. After that, I'll let you know that Israel, after the deportation of 70 years and coming back, idolatry has never been a problem for Israel. Never. There may have been a few little cult groups open here and there, but you'll never see idolatry in Israel after that. And they are very sensitive to it to this day. Far more sensitive to it than is the church. They really learned their lesson after that Babylonian captivity. But that's why these things started to happen. What we see in this is that, what about these young guys though? Daniel and his three friends. What did they have to do with this? They weren't the culprits that were bowing down to idols. How come they're caught in this mess? And what we see is we see God has a pattern for global history. This you and I don't affect much. We're too little to affect this. Maybe presidents and stuff can affect this. And kings and prime ministers. All I can do is complain about it. It doesn't do anything. And then we also see God interested in personal history. There is a pattern of global history that extends beyond us. But then there's also personal history that he is deeply involved in. What is our response to the things that are taking place? And what we're going to see is we're going to see throughout this the choices that Daniel makes framed within this picture of history. So you have the framework of history, the deportation to Babylon. Now we're going to see the personal choices that Daniel and his three friends make in relation to what's going to happen in their own lives. And so that w- what we're going to see is we're going to see this period in, uh, in, in, in history as to why Daniel, why is this happening to Daniel? And one of the things is we're going to see God's hand upon the remnant of Israel. What is the remnant of Israel? Well, you have all of the Jews and you had a remnant, which was a sliver of all of the Jews, those that sought the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We know that that number was relatively small, for example, in the days of Elijah. In the days of Elijah, it's estimated there were two to three million Jews. There were only 7,000 that had not bowed their knee to Baal. There were only 7,000 followers at that time. What we're going to see is what he did with the remnant of Israel. We're also going to see that this is a time where he's going to teach his people, Israel and us in the church, he's going to teach 
how do you live in a world that's dominated and run by, by unbelievers? How do we as believers interact in a world that's dominated by unbelievers? Not everybody works in a church environment. Not everybody works in a good Christian school. How do we act and live in an environment that is not run by believers? Because this is the beginning of the times of the Gentiles. Jesus said, when the times of the Gentiles are completed. What was he talking about? Jerusalem is under the domination of Gentiles. From that moment, from that attack by Nebuchadnezzar, Jerusalem was under the domination of the Gentiles and it still has not ended. You say, well, no, Israel is there, they're back in the land. But if you look at the old city, the old city has about 25,000 people living in it. Only about 2,000 of those are Jews. The rest of them are not Jews. We know that the times of the Gentiles are not going to end until the tribulation period. Until deep into the tribulation period. That we know. So this is the time of the Gentiles. How do we live under this as believers? How do we as believers interact with a world that is run by people who don't believe? This is what the scriptures are are teaching us in this book. And man's response to this. Look in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. And look in verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Look, God creates this. He appoints to us how long we're going to live on earth. He appoints to us our our habitation. Where we're going to live. Where we're going to be born. He says that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and exist. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are all His children. So you see that there is a personal part, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for Him. Within this, we are going to seek God. How do we respond in this world where all this is going on? Because you very clearly see in Daniel chapter 1 verse 2, it is God who gave Jehoiakim into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. It is God who allowed Nebuchadnezzar to take the vessels out of the temple and to bring them to the house of his God. Why wouldn't God just, you know, lightning just strike down every time one of his soldiers reached out to the... I think God could have done that. No, he handed it to them. Here, take this. Because of the immorality of my people, take this. They need to learn. This happens all the time in lives. I've seen it. And I'm seeing it now with one of my friends. You know, you you see marriages break up. You see things that men do to destroy marriages. And they, they, they don't even see it. The decisions, the choices they make with other women outside their marriage. And somebody was saying, why don't you go and talk to this man? I said, I've talked to him. Go and talk to him. His marriage is just breaking up. I said, he's not going to see it. He's not going to see it until he loses his job. He loses his money. He loses his wife. He loses his children. When he loses everything, then maybe he'll wake up. What causes us not to see? What caused them not to see what God was going to do? There was warning after warning. 
And we get warning after warning in the Scriptures. And then God comes because He loves us enough. He says, okay, that's what you want to do. I'll turn you over to it. And the Scriptures talk about how this woman that you long for is going to become just your absolute downfall. You think that this woman beyond your wife was the one that was going to make you happy? says she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death and her steps lay hold of Sheol. That's what it says of the adulterous woman in the book of Proverbs. She is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Wait until you see what this woman is really like. Wait until you trash your whole marriage and move in with her. Then you will see. This is the warning. It is us caught in this, this time, this instant, this little window of history. We are here. We can't affect all of this to any, any, any decent extent. But what we can do is we have within this parameter, within this bound, boundary that God has for us, our decisions make profound impacts upon what our responses are. Our responses make profound impact on what the outcome of events are going to be. We have free reign within the confines of these small spaces. What are we going to do with it? This is the picture that we're going to see with Daniel. It was God. Do you see this? It was God who turned him over. It wasn't that, oh, we're just caught up in this history of it. No, this was prophesied and it was all God. We see decisions. Jacob. Jacob deceived his father concerning his brother. He said that he was his brother, bless me. He deceived his father. Well, what happened with Jacob? We see the pattern in Scripture. His own sons deceived him. His own sons deceived... Jacob's own sons deceived him saying, well, your son is dead when they know they sold him into slavery. And they deceived him. Jacob the deceiver. Jacob the one who deceived his father was deceived by his own children. This is what I tell men when I see them going astray. I say, you step down this pathway. Your daughters will end up sleeping with other men and other men will take advantage of your daughters just as you were doing with another man's daughter. I remember I said it to one guy. He said, you don't know that. I said, oh yes, I do. And he lost everything. He lost everything. And he went from marriage into marriage into marriage. And he left a string of broken women and broken lives until the third marriage, his wife left him for another man. I'm not a prophet. I didn't, it's not like I heard this word from the Lord for him. I just see what the scriptures say. It is real. This is what we're going to see lived out in the life of these young men. Decisions and consequences. And other people's decisions and the consequences of it. But we're not tossed to and fro in history. God very much cares about the individual and the individual's decisions within this big play of history. Let's pray.
Abba Father, I thank you so much for your word, for the truth of your word. And Lord, as we are going to be studying this book of Daniel, teach us from his life. Teach us so that we might yearn for you. Lord, I pray for these young people that you would get a hold of their hearts, that they would not walk in immorality, but they would decide this day to choose you, to choose life, to choose that which is honest and honorable, lest they see their lives crumble around them. Lord, I pray that as they walk their lives, when they start stepping astray, Lord, that you would make it clear to them and that you would warn them through your word. And Father, I pray that they take heed. But if they don't, Lord, let them fall into the disasters so that they would come to their senses and turn back to you. Father, I pray for these young people that when they see that the decisions that they have made in dishonesty or in unfaithfulness toward you or in immorality, when they have walked away from you and they see their lives starting to fall apart, Lord, I pray that they would be quick to fall on their knees and beat their breasts and say, Lord God, forgive me because I am a sinner. Forgive me because I am a sinner. And that you would restore them. Lord, I pray you have mercy on these young people. And that we would take our lives seriously before you. And that we would yearn for you. In this place where you have us. In this brief window of history that you have us. Lord, let us long for you. Lord, teach us from the life of Daniel. And make us like Daniel. This model that you have set before us. Make us like him. For the glory of God. Amen.